The Securities and Exchange Commission sued Coinbase, the largest cryptocurrency trading platform in the United States today. The SEC accuses Coinbase of breaking market rules by allowing users to trade unregistered securities. This comes a day after the SEC accused the crypto platform Binance of mishandling funds. Well, President Joe Biden is awarding $115 million to support needed investments to rebuild Jackson, Mississippi's water infrastructure. The federal dollars are part of $600 million in appropriations funding approved by Congress last year. Jackson, a majority black city of nearly 150,000 residents, is in a state of rebuilding after its water system nearly collapsed last summer due to major flooding and years of infrastructure neglect. A Texas sheriff's office has recommended that a San Antonio area district attorney file criminal charges following an investigation into the transportation in the fall of 49 asylum seekers from Texas to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, allegedly on direction from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, it's not clear whom the charges would be filed against, but the case would include both felony and misdemeanor charges of unlawful restraint, according to the sheriff's office. State officials in Oklahoma approved the local Roman Catholic archdiocese request to operate a public charter school. It will be the first explicitly religious public school in the United States in modern times. Supporters of the school hope to use it as a test case to take to the Supreme Court and win a clear right for charter schools to offer religious instruction. Well, the 2024 GOP field is ballooning this week, adding three new candidates. Chris Christie and Doug Burgum are set to announce their presidential campaigns this week, and Mike Pence has already filed his paperwork. As Chris Christie enters the race, he has cast himself as the one candidate unafraid to give voice to the frustrations of Republicans who have watched Donald Trump transform the party and those who say they have had enough, either of the ideological direction or the years of compounding electoral losses. Three women who claim Cooper Gooding Jr. sexually abused them, including one upset that she never got her day in court when Gooding resolved criminal charges without trial or jail, were prepared today to testify at a federal civil trial to support a woman's claim that the actor raped her in 2013. Now, the case settled just before the trial was started. Was slated to begin. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, a Trump ally, is calling on the Justice Department to provide lawmakers with internal documents laying out the scope of Special Counsel Jack Smith's investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents found last year at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. Well, America's state capitals are as polarized as ever with lawmakers imposing unflinchingly conservative or liberal agendas this year, even in politically diverse places. The 2022 election brought civil or brought single party control of the governor's office and legislature to 39 states, the most in the last three decades. You are listening to Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. 
And in this hour, I'm joined by Dr. Niambi Carter. She's an author and professor at the University of Maryland and Dr. Omikongo Dabinga. He's also a professor at American University. He has a new book coming out. We're going to talk about that a little later in the show. And in my second hour, we go behind the headlines. My expert legal panel is here to discuss the upcoming motions for a new trial and motion to set aside the verdict in the federal bribery trial of Mark Ridley Thomas. Will former LA council member Mark Ridley Thomas become the exception to the rule that's pretty entrenched that federal uh, guilty verdicts are oftentimes, and some would say even impossible to overturn. We'll go deep on what's happening in the Mark Ridley Thomas, Thomas federal bribery trial in hour two. But before I bring on my guests, here's what I'm thinking about in real time. As you probably have heard throughout the last 24 to 48 hours, calls are growing quite loudly, I would say, for the arrest of a woman accused of shooting her neighbor Friday in a small town in Florida. This woman who has uh, been identified as a 50-year-old uh year-old white woman shot and killed A.J. Owens, a 35-year-old mother of four. Uh, Miss Owens' children were playing in a field near an apartment complex where the shooter lived. Uh, the shooter began yelling at her kids to get off the land. She's also used racial slurs when addressing the children. And apparently at some point she threw an object. Now there's some dispute whether it was a skate or an iPad that the kids had left behind, but apparently this object did strike one of the children. Uh, as children do, they went home, they told their mom and Miss Owens, their mother, went to the neighbor's house, knocked on the door, apparently to talk to this neighbor about confronting her children, throwing the object, and using racial slurs, including the N-word. But before the neighbor could even open the door, she shot and she killed this young mother of four. And the saddest part of this story is the mother's nine-year-old child was standing with her at that door and apparently witnessed his mother being shot and killed. Now, the sheriff in this county says that Florida's 2005 Stand Your Ground law prevents him from making an arrest. If you will recall, this law came to light in the 2012 uh, prosecution of George Zimmerman for the shooting and killing of Trayvon Martin. Florida Stand Your Ground law allows people to meet force with force if they believe they are in danger of being seriously harmed by an assailant. Now, under the law, a person can use deadly force if they reasonably believe that his or her life and safety are in danger as a result of an overt act or a perceived threat committed by someone else. So here's the problem with the Stand Your Ground law in Florida and the law that exists similar to Florida's law in about two dozen states across this country. It's this concept of reasonable, reasonable belief. This standard is so subjective. Now, in this Florida case, this shooter can assert that she was in fear that Miss Owens was going to break into her Apartment and that Miss Owens was going to do some bodily harm to her. Now, even if Miss Owens did nothing but appear at the door 
unarmed and knocked on the door with the intent to talk to the neighbor in a calm and professional manner, this law allows the shooter to claim that she was in fear of an overt act or a perceived threat that would be committed by Ms. Owens. Uh, experts have done research on Stand Your Grounds Law and studies show that the immunity that it affords can produce racially disparate results. Racial stereotypes can cause people to misinterpret innocent behavior uh, as something threatening or violent and stand your ground laws can then provide justification for shooting and killing someone as in the case of Miss Owens. We already know that black people are considered to be inherently dangerous just by virtue of being, not by virtue of doing anything in particular. And this case is so troubling. Uh, here's this mom whose children now will be without her. This mom who was doing what any mom would do, which was making an effort to protect her children, and she ends up dead. The shooter didn't even have the, the decency, didn't give her the courtesy, the civility of trying to mediate this dispute, didn't call the police, didn't retreat. Uh, and according to Florida law, she really didn't have a legal obligation to do so. We know there have been efforts to repeal the standard ground law in Florida and in other states, and Florida has been adamantly opposed and resistant to any changes to its laws. The National Rifle Association has weighed in. It has been a staunch supporter of standard ground laws, as well as other conservative lawmakers. Uh, I am hoping against all hope that this tragedy, this tragic shooting and killing of this mother of four will be the catalyst, will be uh, the stimulus for Florida or some state to be a profile in courage and to step up and to say enough is enough. This kind of senseless violence should not happen in our states and in our country. My heart goes out to Ms. Owens, uh, four children, to her family, her mother, her sisters, uh, her friends, all of whom who have been speaking out, demanding that justice be served. We're going to watch this case very closely, and hopefully there will soon be an arrest of that shooter who fired through a closed door without even asking a single question. Stay with us. More of today's trending news and my expert analysis when we come forward. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and I'm joined in this hour by Dr. Niambi Carter. She's a professor at the University of Maryland and Dr. Omikongo Dabinga. He is a professional lecturer at American University and he's out with a new book, uh, the book is called Lies About Black People, How to Combat Racist Stereotypes and Why It Matters. Uh, welcome back, Dr. Carter and Dr. Dabinga. Uh, while we were in our commercial, uh, there was some breaking news. And the news is that Florida has confirmed that it, it was Ron DeSantis who actually arranged for the uh, flight to Sacramento 
of these immigrants. And it's, again, after days of silence, officials in Florida confirmed that the administration of Governor Ron DeSantis had orchestrated two recent charter flights that carried groups of migrants from New Mexico to Sacramento. Uh, they These flights obviously resulted in an outcry from leaders in California who promised to initiate criminal and civil investigations and possible charges. Uh, on Twitter, California's governor, Gavin Newsom, suggested that kidnapping charges were warranted against those responsible for the flights. Dr. Dabinga, how surprised are you that the evidence now is coming out that these flights from New Mexico to Sacramento, California, were orchestrated by Ron DeSantis? I'm not surprised. What, what frustrates me, however, is that the Department of Justice is not engaging in this at a, at, a, at a faster rate. When we watch what's happening with some of these other trials relating to election denial with Donald Trump, we see like states are leading the charge, like Fannie Willis in Georgia and so on and so forth. But the Department of Justice has more information, has more resources. This is the same with Ron DeSantis. He's kidnapping these people after they get processed and sending them all across the country and has been doing this for months. So where is the Department of Justice that has more resources and, and more knowledge on how these things are supposed to be uh, are supposed to be processed and dealt with? And because Ron DeSantis is clearly not going to stop. And the majority of these cities that he's been sending to uh, people to, the majority of these cities are cities with black mayors on top of that. So and it's not the case for all of them, clearly. But there is something very intentional about intentional about what Ron DeSantis is doing. And really, at the end of the day, this is one of the reasons why DeSantis could be more dangerous than Trump, because Trump is all about the bombast and doing it doesn't care about the law. Ron DeSantis is very precise about how he goes against uh, traditional norms. He's very precise about how he changes legislation. I mean, he got Florida to agree to the legislators to agree to let him stay governor if he loses the election for president. The man is slick and he's doing stuff behind the scenes. You don't even know about it until it hits you in the face. So if people don't stop him now. He's never going to stop. And the Department of Justice needs to get ahead of this more than other states. Yeah, I think absolutely correct. I agree with you. And it's a great point. Uh, let me read to you, uh, Dr. Carter, what the commu communications director for Florida, for the Florida Division of Emergency Management said. Uh, she said that the migrants' relocation to California had been voluntary and that they had been taken to a nonprofit. Through verbal and written consent, these volunteers indicated they wanted to go to California. A contractor was present and ensured they made it safely to a third-party NGO. Uh, the specific NGO, Catholic Charities, is used and funded by the federal government. Now, at a, uh, a press conference that uh, DeSantis was at, not related to this issue, he was at a bill signing ceremony, uh, the governor did not take questions from reporters. And they found Dr. Carter this silence from DeSantis on, on this high-profile incident that's drawing national attention to be uncharacteristic, especially given how pointed Governor Newsom and others had been in their attacks of DeSantis. Now, are we to buy this story that these individuals voluntarily agreed or indicated that they wanted to come to California? And it was so important to DeSantis that he put them on a private jet <laughs> to send them. For, I mean, literally, he didn't put them on a bus. He didn't put them on a Greyhound or the Amtrak. They flew private jets to Sacramento. What are we to make of this story? 
Well, look, I mean, I think the thing that we're seeing now is that there are real questions about the legality of all this. This is why you have attorney generals in California and in Texas, right, in San Antonio, more particularly, looking into this because these people were giving inducements, right, to to also say yes. They weren't big ones, right? But a $10 gift card to McDonald's when you have nothing looks like a lot. And it's not clear that people knew what they were signing. It's not clear that these documents were translated. And then they were also giving people these pamphlets telling them that they could qualify for services that they knew full well they wouldn't qualify for as non-citizens. So I think there's a lot happening here. There is the trickery, right? People are being told things that are not true, that they're going to be jobs, they're going to be places for them to live. People are giving unfair inducements that would make to you and I, we would say $10, that's nothing. But to someone who has nothing, that's a lot of something. And then, you know, then it's the also this question of, can you use Florida's money to pay jets to take play people from Texas to then transport them to yet another state. And they've been doing this to Massachusetts, to California, and, and to New York. So quite frankly, I think there are a lot of questions. I mean, I think the fact that Floridians seem to be okay, at least, with this this their governor spending at least one and a half million dollars. And I think he has a coffer up to 12 million of their dollars to spend to resolve this issue for other states is, is a, a, a big question. You know, yeah, that's that- such a great point, Dr. Carter. These people weren't even in Florida. No. These people are being transported from New Mexico to Sacramento. And you're right, $12 million have been set aside in the state of Florida for the transportation of these migrants. And it's clear, as you said, the inducement. So what, what's voluntary? We got to get into a whole exactly. definition of what voluntary is. If Absolutely. I'm homeless, if I have no job, if I'm new to this country, I don't speak the language, and you come and tell me there are jobs in this other state and there's services and there's housing and there are resources, and I sign, yes, I voluntarily signed, but I was fraudulently induced to sign. Uh, these people were outside of a shelter. So it wasn't like they went knocking on the door of someone in Florida saying, hey, can you get us a jet over to Sacramento? <laughs> like, you know, can, can you help us get to SAC? You know, so it, it's such, it's, it, it just makes you so angry how vulnerable people are being used as pawns to elevate the, you know, the street cred, the, the conservative street cred of this governor uh, and you are right, Dr. Domingo, we need to see the Department of Justice step in. We, there's a class action suit uh, being filed by those migrants that were sh- you know, flown to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, now California is looking at whether it's going to file some kind of civil and criminal case against uh, you know, the folks behind this, i.e. DeSantis and company. But we need national action on this. We need the the Department of Justice to step in to send a loud message to DeSantis, to Abbott, and any of these governors that think that they can use people, the most vulnerable people, uh, you know, at their lowest point to try to uh, score points for their presidential campaigns. It's really just immoral. Uh, DeSantis is coming to Sacramento apparently on June 19th for a big fundraiser. I hope. There are so many protesters waiting at the airport when he lands that he's got to get back on that plane and turn his little butt back around and go back to Florida. I hope California sends him a very strong message that his kind of politics and his his kind of antics are not wanted in the state of California and that he's not welcome here. This is really it's just upsetting when you think about it. Uh, Dr. Carter, let's talk about Cuba Gooding Jr. I didn't even read the headlines on Bill Cosby because I could have read the headlines on him, uh, 86 year old woman. 
uh, has been given the go-ahead in a civil case against Bill Cosby as well. There's a one-year look-back period. So this woman says that Bill Cosby raped her. This happened in, I believe, 1969 or so. That lawsuit is able to move forward. I assume she's been emboldened by E. Jean Carroll's successful lawsuit against Donald Trump. Uh, Cuba Gooding Jr., as of this morning, his team said he wasn't going to settle. He was holding firm. He wanted his day in court. And then an hour later, I step away from my computer. I get a notice. He has settled yet another lawsuit. There are apparently up to 30 women who claim Cuba Gooding Jr. sexually abused them. And this court, this federal trial, had it been had it moved forward, the judge was going to let three other women testify about similar experiences with Mr. Gooding. Well, look, I think Cuba Gooding and his legal team probably figured that it's better to settle this now than have all of these accusations be put into the, the legal record, right? Because that's going to live forever. And yes, people can do interviews and people can kind of talk about these things, but it's a different ball game when these women have to stand up on that stand and detail the many ways that he assaulted them, the many ways that emotionally and otherwise from their experiences with him. And if, you know, he plans to continue to have a career, I don't know what that career looks like. Um, I think he thought it better for people to think that I'm a sexual abuser than to actually be found guilty of it, even in a civil trial. It's not criminal, but still, I think this was a bit of gamesmanship um, on his part, because of course people say, I'm not going to settle. I'm not going to settle. I'm not guilty. But when you really think about what the longer term consequences this might be, even if he had gotten out of there, found not to be liable, this is still on the public record. This is still fodder for people to report the details of this. I think Cuba Gooding uh, thought it better, along with his legal representatives, to settle than to have that be out in public. Uh, what do you make, Dr. DeBinga? Bill Cosby, he just had a $500,000 civil verdict uh, judgment against him uh, in a civil court outside of LA. That happened last year. Now this other woman is claiming that Bill Cosby raped her and she's seeking uh, civil judgment as well. Some folks say, you know, these cases are so old, they're decades old, the ones related to Bill Cosby. Uh, why are they allowed to come forward? And, you know, I, I said to someone this morning on, on a, a news show, you can't fault the women if the legislature opens up a window for them to file claims right. and they are allowed to file their claims. Bill Cosby, Cuba Gooding Jr., anyone defendant in a lawsuit gets an opportunity to have their day in court. But Bill Cosby's almost 90 and he's still being sued for his conduct decades ago. Well, you know, the, the real shame of this is that we have this system in place that makes it harder for victims to come forward. The way that they can lose their careers, the way that they can, you know, the way that they can lose opportunities to, to move themselves forward. And then you have the financial disparities if they don't have the resources of somebody like a Bill Cosby or a Trump. And so really, at the end of the day, when you hear Adrian Carroll talk about the time, the time period, they coming from that same time period of what was expected of women today. You know, you don't talk about these things. Uh, she talked about people should look at it as honor to be flirted with, you know, even if things went a little bit further. Then you throw in all of these other things with quaaludes and the drinks and so on and so forth. There was never an incentive structure in place 
for victims, especially women, to be able to come forward. And so I applaud women who are in their 70s, their 80s, who who are seeing the opportunities now to get up there and speak up because they know they've always known it was the right thing to do, but society was shutting them down before they could even seek legal action. But now, you know, post Me Too, a lot of people thought that Me Too was was just a moment, but it really has been a movement as it relates to how it inspired people to keep doing this. And so whether it's Cuba Gooding Jr., who's much younger than Cosby or Cosby or Trump or anyone in between, I am happy that yes. women in particular have an opportunity to get justice and any any assault victim. Absolutely. When we come forward, we're going to talk about the Roman Catholic Church running a public school and Mississippi is finally getting some relief with respect to its water. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. Arriva time is the right time. More of Arriva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. The present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back, and in this hour, I'm joined by Dr. Niambi Carter. She's a professor at the University of Maryland, and Dr. Omi Congo Dabinga. He's a lecturer at American University. He's also the author of a new book that's coming out a couple of weeks, and it's called Lies About Black People How to Combat Racist Stereotypes and Why It Matters. All right. uh, Both of you are educators. What are you making of a Catholic archdiocese being given the uh, go ahead, the legal go ahead, the green light to take over a public charter school? What does this mean for a separation of of state and church and, um, you know, keeping public schools free of religious influence? What concerns do you have about uh, this a local uh, Catholic church taking over a public school. This is happening in Oklahoma. State officials are approving it. And they see this as a test case to take to the Supreme Court as they try to blur the lines between, uh, you know, public institutions and religious instruction. Dr. Carter, what are you making of this? Look, I think this is the, like you said, this is the test case because I don't think this was going to stop with this one. And I think what we already know is what many people know is it takes a while for these cases to make their way to the Supreme Court. So while they're duking it out, these people are still allowed to teach this religious curriculum to the children whose parents have selected that school for them to go. And taxpayers will have to foot that bill. Or in this case, it's fully funded, not even partially funded, because they do have schools like this that are religious um, but get some funding from the state, but their funding they get elsewhere. But this is the first time we see fully publicly funded religious institutions. And so I think what we're gonna see here is other Christian in particular, uh, religious institutions uh, that will start doing these kinds of things. I think what will be interesting if other religious denominations like uh, Muslims or other or Islam uh, decide they want to do the same with the Islamic charter schools, will they receive the same reception? Because part of this is if you're going to open the door, you have to open it for everybody. But I think this is a really dangerous precedent. I mean, even the attorney general in the state of Oklahoma said, don't do this. And yet the state of Oklahoma is proceeding because they have a, a gentle listening ear with the Supreme What's the harm right now? What's the harm, Dr. Dabinga? Some people would say, oh, you know, what does it matter? If kids say a prayer in the morning or there's a plaque hanging on the wall with the Ten Commandments or, you know, some praying hands or a picture of Jesus, help us understand why this is a big deal. 
Well, the fact of the matter is, if we are talking about the separation of church and state, then we need to have the separation of, of church and state. And as Dr. Carter said, it really comes down to who, whose religion. I mean, what if there's somebody who doesn't worship Jesus? Are we also going to start letting um, Muslim students uh, leave to, to pray if it's during the time of five times a day when they're supposed to pray? When we have this movement going on across the country where people are talking about parents' rights and you know respect for parents' abilities to have a say in their classroom, they're not talking about all parents. They're talking about the Christian fundamentalists who are trying to recreate what's basically happening in the Taliban in, in, in Afghanistan. So that's the real danger. People are trying are saying that our values matter and yours do not. And if you don't want to come to our schools, then don't come. And this is going to happen all across. It is happening all across the country. And people are emboldened by the fact that we have that Supreme Court that is an activist-minded Supreme Court. They're emboldened by people like uh, Vice President Mike Pence, who's about to run for president, and other ones who want to make this a fundamentally Christian nation. And so really, at the end of the day, these people have no interest in religious tolerance for other groups. They want to make sure that this country is indoctrinated in, uh, in a Christian value in the Christian extreme that they see it, this evangelical mm -hmm. style, not, you know, not, we're not talking about Dr. King style Christianity. We're talking about this evangelical white supremacist style Christianity, and they're going to use every legal means to do it. They're going to use every religious means to do it. And ultimately, because they feel like they have emboldened, they have been emboldened by the Supreme Court, they're not going to stop, which is why I'm going to say that I hope that if Biden does indeed win a second term, he expands the Supreme Court. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned white supremacy, uh, because underneath a lot of what we know in terms of this, this white Christian movement is, is, is buttressed by a, a white supremacist narrative and a narrative of, you know, a white hierarchical structure that puts certain folks, typically white cisgender males at the top of that structure and basically requires everyone to fall in line with their views and their ideology. And anyone that doesn't is othered and marginalized. And, and that is what's so scary about a Catholic church taking over a public school. And I happen to be Catholic. Uh, and so I went to a Catholic school. I went to a Catholic elementary school, a Catholic high school. My daughter, one of my daughters went to a Catholic high school. So I believe in a Catholic education, but I believe that as a parent, uh, it should be limited to those Catholic schools and those of us that choose to send our kids there. That's what we should do. My kids also went to public school and I didn't want my kids when they were at public schools uh, being indoctrinated with Catholicism. That that was appropriate when they were at the Catholic school and we were making a choice. But we know black and brown kids who go to public schools uh, in their communities aren't going to have choices. A lot, a lot of them won't be able to leave those schools. They won't be able to make choices uh, to leave, and yet they may be forced to be indoctrinated with this, this white, cisgender, patriarchal <laughs> uh, narrative that is so incredibly harmful. We've seen it at, at work. We've seen it at work during the 2016 uh, presidential campaign. It'd be interesting to see, Dr. Carter, uh, the role that white evangelicals play in this election coming up. They've been a little quiet. Uh, some have stepped away quietly from Donald Trump. It will be interesting to see if they rear their ugly heads, if they uh, galvanize, if they become galvanized around him in the way that we saw in 2015. Uh, this new report out that says that our state capitals are as polarized as they have been in decades. Uh, and lawmakers on both sides of the agenda, you know, both sides of the aisle, both conservative and liberal, uh, using their power, their single party control 
to push through legislation consistent with their ideology and the will of the voters be damned. Where where, where are we going to be, you know, in 10 years in this country if this continues to be the pattern that we follow? Well, listen, I think if there's going to be much of a country left, and I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but if you keep attacking the very institutions that undergird your country, like your democracy, like fundamental constitutional freedoms, um, like freedom of religion, to be free from religion, right? That's what the Establishment Clause is about. We don't establish a state religion, yet you see other actors, state actors trying to do just that, like we were talking about with Oklahoma. So I think you know, these evangelicals are watching this very closely, and I don't think they're quiet at all. They're playing a long game, right? I mean, they mm-hmm. are the ones who are behind these sort of abortion bans, and they're the ones who are pushing through and, and sort of, you know, quietly waiting to see what's going to happen because they're right on board. I mean, this this white Christian nationalism is very real. Um, and I think they have sold Americans that it's harmless. It's just about family values. And yeah, there's ideology and there are things that you believe in. But your religion is, is it, if your religion is your ideology, then we're in another world of hurt because that is expressly what the United States was founded to get away from. So right. I think these people have perverted um, the the their sort of values and norms and beliefs into a political po- uh, turn it into public policy. And that's something you didn't see with Republicans even, you know, 50 years ago. I mean, the party has strayed. And of course, everybody uses their power to push their vision of the world forward, for sure. But I think one of the things we have to always keep in mind is that when you have um, one party in power that can do whatever it wants, it's really just setting up a sort of tit for tat kind of thing. So they don't stay in power forever, but we know that they can consolidate power and stay in power very long. And that's dangerous for whatever political party or political leaning you have. So I think that's what we're going to see in these state legislatures. People redrawing districts that favor themselves, people changing the rules of the game, doing <laughs> lots of commissions, dis, you know, abolishing certain uh, agencies. All kinds of things can go wrong. That's why we don't want single party systems. That's why they're dangerous. But if people are not respecting the rules of the game, then it's all for naught. And everybody is just really egging on a, a, a team. They're not really pushing forward policy and putting forward, um, you know, politics that actually empower and make our lives better. Everybody just wants to win. And that's a very different game. Yeah. And a part of that is totally ignoring the will of the people that elected them and put them in power. We see even on this issue of access to abortion, the way many of these conservative legislators are voting is inconsistent with what their own constituents want and feel about access to abortion. So it's if they go to the state houses and some go to Congress and Senate and they detach from the very people who they've been elected to represent, uh, when we come forward, I want to talk about $115 million in support to rebuild Jackson, Mississippi's water infrastructure. Is that enough, given the harm that has been done to the residents, 150,000 Black residents and others in the city of Jackson, Mississippi? Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. 
So, Dr. Dupinga, President Joe Biden is awarding $115 million to Jackson, Mississippi to uh, support its investment in rebuilding its water infrastructure. I actually had an aunt that was living in Jackson and was running a restaurant. And I remember her telling me that she had to literally boil water in order to serve at her restaurant and to cook at her restaurant. And it became so onerous that she eventually closed the restaurant because it was just too difficult uh, trying to serve food in a, a, you know, a hygienic way, in a safe way, given the state of the water infrastructure. Uh, and now you see uh, the federal government getting involved and granting some what appears to be sizable dollars to this city that is predominantly African-American. But uh, the question is, is it enough? And, you know, is it too little, too late? Really, I guess is the better question. Well, <clears throat> I don't know any, about the too little, too late, because, you know, they were supposed to receive about $420 million, $29 million from the EPA a few months ago, but that was going to be for the state. And so now I believe that with well, Kristen Clark, you know, as well, that the maybe the Biden administration has realized that they have to be more specific and direct and intentional with getting money directly to Jackson because the state has a history of denying Jackson resources because primarily because of its black leadership and black majority there. And so I feel like the Biden administration is being obviously we wish it happened earlier. But the reason why they have a water crisis there is not because of Mississippi of Jackson's black leadership. It's because of what the state and what the leadership in the state of Mississippi has done to undermine Black empowerment in that city. We can talk in other segments about what they're doing with the court systems and the police systems and the like, and the water crisis is just part of it. So I applaud what Biden is doing as it relates to specifically targeting Jackson because the state of Mississippi has specifically targeted Jackson and they need this federal assistance to make sure that they can start having their own level of sufficiency. And I'm going to just come back to saying again, the Justice Department needs to be looking into what the state of Mississippi has been doing to the residents of Jackson as well. It, you, you say that, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. The reality is the Justice Department is needed in so many places and spaces from these police departments. I, I Yesterday, I talked about Patterson, New Jersey. Patterson, New Jersey is out of control. It's a history of abuse of shooting and killing black men. I read this story that just literally made me sick at the stomach, the level of corruption in that police department uh, that has gone unchecked for decades. The state's uh, attorney general stepped in and took over the police department, uh, uh, an effort that I don't necessarily support because we know that Republican state's attorneys are trying to take over police departments and cities run by black folks. So uh, you can't support it in one instance, but oppose it in another. But again, that's where the Justice Department and under Donald Trump, the Justice Department was basically uh, serving as his private law firm and spending a lot of time trying to keep him out of legal jeopardy rather than uh, investigating some of these practices, whether it's the infrastructure issues that you just identified, Dr. Dabinga, or uh, you know these rogue police departments. Uh, obviously, the Biden Department of Justice, I, I'm not thrilled about Mary Garland as uh, the attorney general, but Kristen Clark and some of the other folks that are in that civil rights division are outstanding and are doing a phenomenal job. And I hope in the second Biden administration, we see a much stronger attorney general that will, you know, go after some of these issues that we've been talking about uh, today. Uh, 
that this is a great segue into the GOP candidates, uh, Dr. Carter. That field on the GOP side is getting awful crowded. Uh, Chris Christie, Doug Burgum, uh, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott. It's a long list of folks all vying to knock Donald Trump off his number one position. And Chris Christie says, look, I'm the tough New Jersey former governor that can get this done. I can give a voice to the frustration of Republicans who are upset with Donald Trump, who've watched him transform our party, who's watched uh, him lead our party to all of these electoral losses. Is Chris Christie just, you know, selling, as we used to say back in the day, wolf tickets? Or do you think there's some real, you know, can, can he really bring some heat to Donald Trump? Well, look, I certainly think Chris Christie does have a reputation, right, of from his time in New Jersey. I mean, he he talks a big talk. He's a big guy and he and he says what he thinks. I mean, literally and figuratively, right? He says what he thinks. I think keeping Donald Trump from being the nominee would be a win. But this crowd is 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 it's, I mean, it's crowded. This field is crowded. I mean, you also forgot Vivek Ramaswamy, who's still, I think, mm. in the so there's in the yet another person, right? And what he did the first time around was play the middle. He just had to make it through the primary. And I think that's the part that many people forget. It's not the general that's going to matter. It's what happens in the primary. So Chris Christie has to have that money. He has to have that backing. And he has to be able to stick it out through the full primary cycle. And I think a lot of these names you listed, these people aren't going to make it. They're not even <laughs> going to make a splash. I mean, Tim Scott is a non-starter. Nikki Haley, a non-starter. Well, I they're, think they're interviewing for a vice president, I think, more I think than you're, I think president. you're exactly right. But that's the thing. I think Chris Christie certainly does not want to be vice president. And he no. certainly would never be number two to a Donald Trump. And he has been vocal in his criticism of Donald Trump. I mean, he did like everybody else did. They lined up behind their man in 2016. But I think people see the destruction of their party. And it's so far right, right, that to pull it back from the brink, I think, would take a Herculean effort. And maybe this will energize Republican leaners and moderate Republicans who felt really beleaguered by the party who've left, who just are disinterested. Maybe he can do that. And I think he might have enough gravitas if he can stay in the race, right? Yeah. Big <laughs> if, you're right, big if, because these races, you're going to raise a billion dollars, basically, plus, a billion plus, uh, to run for president of the United States. And Chris Christie didn't do so well in 2016. In fact, he did pretty poorly. Uh, Dr. Dominga, the majority of Republicans say they don't want Chris Christie. They're like, dude, you know what? You can phone this in. You can stay home. We ain't feeling you. Mm -hmm. But I wonder, can he play a role? I I'm with Dr. Carter. He's not likely to go far. But can he be that voice that punches on Trump in a way that these folks who want to be vice president aren't going to do? So if you're Nikki Haley, you're Tim Scott, you're not going after the boss because you want a second, you don't want to be number two on that ticket. Maybe you want a cabinet position. You want something from him. But if you're Chris Christie, you know you ain't getting nothing. You already and in, in tore that relationship up. It's over. It's done. So you can just, you know, go for it. Do you think he can dirty Trump up in a way that will help us in the general election? I don't I don't think so. And the reason why is because Chris Christie's gonna say what he's gonna say. He's gonna come at Trump, but the Trump supporters are not going to be listening to him. 
right? And I don't think that, you know, Chris Christie may say it on like an MSNBC or uh, or CNN, but they're not going to interview him on like Fox or, or One America where Trump supporters are going to be. And so is he going to be pretty much talking into a vacuum? And lastly, I fully believe that Christie could really hit Trump hard on the debate stage, but I don't believe Trump's <laughs> going to attend the debates because he doesn't need to, because he's already the front runner. So I don't think he's going to give Christie that space to be able to publicly attack him or embarrass him. And so that's why I feel like ultimately Chris Christie's going to be a lot of bluster and maybe in some of the networks that are non-Republican leaning or non-heavy Republican leaning. But I think ultimately he's going to be yelling in the wind. Yeah, I hear you on that. And you're right. Uh, if he goes on Fox and tries to uh, attack Donald Trump, they're cutting his mic and he will never be invited back. So we know he's not going to be spewing, you know, any kind of hate against Donald Trump or let's put it like this, telling the truth about mm -hmm. Donald Trump on Fox. But I'm hopeful that he gets a big enough platform on those networks you just identified, CNN, MSNBC, uh, maybe some of the morning shows that happen on network uh, television on Sundays, some of the print media gives him a platform because maybe he impacts those independent voters, not those hardcore Trump voters. He's not going to make it through the primary. We're all in agreement about that. But maybe he dirties Trump up enough so that when we get, if he's the guy coming out of the primary, going into the general uh, you know, he has had an impact on those independent voters who still uh, are trying to decide if they should vote for Donald Trump. So maybe Chris Christie does have a role to play. All right, guys, we are out of time. Thank you so much, Dr. Niambi Card. I want to make sure I give a shout out uh, to you as well as an author. You have a book. It's called American Wild Black, African-Americans, Immigration and the Limits of Citizenship. Uh, make sure you uh, take a look and pick up a copy of Dr. Carter's book and Dr. Dabinga. Again, he has his new book coming out called Lies About Black People, How to Combat Racist Stereotypes and Why It Matters. Thanks so much to both of you uh, for your brilliant uh, insights and expert analysis. Look forward to seeing you uh, the next time. All right. In my second hour, we go behind the headlines and my legal experts help break down what's happening in the federal bribery trial of Mark Riley Thomas. Does he have a shot at having his guilty verdict set aside and perhaps getting a new federal trial uh, when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580? KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. Because my plan from Verizon is the kind of control we all deserve. Get exactly what you want. Only pay for what you need. Get my plan at your Verizon store today. This is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. There are folks in Denver who have extra appreciation today for Rams owner Stan Kroenke. Kroenke is the Nuggets majority owner. He bought the Nuggets in 1999 for $450 million. A key part of the purchase was Kroenke agreeing not to move the team. Kroenke kept his word and kept the Nuggets in Denver. He now has a team on the doorstep of winning his first NBA championship. According to Forbes magazine, the Nuggets are now worth $1.93 billion, a pretty good investment in a team that was on the verge of leaving Denver before Kroenke stepped in. Congratulations to a brother named Carrick Jackson. Jackson was hired as the head baseball coach at the University of Missouri. The St. Louis native is the first black baseball coach in the history of the Southeastern Conference. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. More news, opinions, and conversation when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. I don't believe it. KBLA Talk 1580. I don't believe it. 
If you're not following KBLA Talk 1580 on all of our socials, then you're missing out. Download our app and find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and on the web at KBLA 1580. That's right. Again, you can find all of our socials at KBLA 1580. We've got a lot to talk about. By the way, if you miss any of our weekday shows in real time, you can always catch up by checking out the podcast of your favorite shows at your leisure. At KBLA Talk 1580, we've got your black. Got your black. Yeah. Yeah. Follow, the follow the leader. Oh, my God. Follow the leader. Follow the leader. Follow the leader. Follow the leader. The Securities and Exchange Commission sued Coinbase, the largest cryptocurrency trading platform in the United States. Uh, They filed that lawsuit today. The SEC accuses Coinbase of breaking market rules by allowing users to trade unregistered securities. Now, this comes a day after the SEC accused the crypto platform Binance of mishandling funds. President Joe Biden is awarding $115 million to support needed investments to rebuild Jackson, Mississippi's water infrastructure. The federal dollars are part of a $600 million appropriations funding approved by Congress last year. Jackson, a majority black city of nearly 150,000 residents, is in a state of rebuilding after its water system nearly collapsed last summer due to major flooding and years of infrastructure neglect. A Texas sheriff's office has recommended that a San Antonio area district attorney file criminal charges following an investigation into the transportation in the fall of 49 asylum seekers from Texas to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Now, allegedly, these migrants were sent to Martha's Vineyard at the direction of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. It's not clear whom the charges would be filed against, but the case would include both felony and misdemeanor charges of unlawful restraint. State officials in Oklahoma approved the local Roman Catholic Archdiocese's request to operate a public charter school. This will be the first explicitly religious public school in the United States in modern times. Supporters of the school hope to use it as a test case to take to the Supreme Court and win a clear right for public schools to offer religious instruction. The 2024 GOP field keeps growing. This week, adding three new candidates, Chris Christie and Doug Burgum, are set to announce their presidential campaigns this week. And Mike Pence has already filed his paperwork. As Chris Christie enters the race, he has cast himself as the only candidate unafraid to give voice to the frustrations of Republicans who've watched Donald Trump transform the party and who have had enough either of the ideological ideological direction or the years of compounding electoral losses. Three women who claim Cuba Gooding Jr. sexually abused them, including one who was upset that she never got her day in court when Gooding resolved criminal charges without trial or jail, were prepared to testify at a federal civil trial today to support a woman's claim that the actor raped her in 2013. Now, the case settled before the trial could begin. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, a top Trump ally, is calling on the Justice Department to provide lawmakers with internal documents which lay out the scope of special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into the former president's handling of classified documents found last year at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. 
Well, America's state capitals are as polarized as they have been in decades, with lawmakers imposing unflinchingly conservative or liberal agendas this year, even in politically diverse places. The 2022 election brought single-party control of the governor's office and legislature to 39 states, the most in at least three decades. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trendy news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is hour two of Ariva Martin in real time, and this is the hour where we go behind the headlines. Today, I have a career prosecutor here who's going to help us make sense of the motions and the replies to those motions filed uh, in the case of Mark Ridley Thomas. Mark Ridley Thomas's legal team is requesting that the guilty verdict against him be set aside. And he's also requesting that the federal district judge grant him a new trial. Now, some legal experts say this is hoping against all hope and that it is nearly impossible to set aside a verdict in a federal criminal trial and that getting even a new case is going to be a Herculean effort. Uh, When we come forward, I talked to career prosecutor Bobby Grace, who has seen his share of these types of motions and the kinds of replies that were filed by the prosecutors. I get Bobby Grace's take on whether Mark Ridley Thomas's legal team has filed uh, persuasive documents and whether they are likely to be successful at the upcoming June 26th hearing. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. Many in the Los Angeles and broader California community were rocked on March 30 when a federal jury convicted Mark Ridley Thomas, former Los Angeles City Council member and former L.A. County supervisor, as well as a former state legislator. Uh, He was convicted of seven counts related to contracts and dealings with the USC, that's University of Southern California, School of Social Work. Now, although Mark Ridley Thomas was acquitted of 12 charges, the jury found him guilty of conspiracy, bribery, and mail and wire fraud. Sentencing in that case is scheduled for August 21st. Now, if you think that was the end of the story, then you don't know Mark Ridley Thomas, as has been the case since he was indicted in October of 2021. Mark Ridley Thomas has continued to challenge the convictions with a pair of legal filings uh, filed uh, several weeks ago before Judge Dale S. Fisher. Both claim that there were numerous problems with the prosecution's case, and they asked the court to basically uh, scotch the decision. One motion asked the judge to vacate the verdict and order a new trial. The other motion calls for her to deliver a judgment of acquittal. Mark Ridley Thomas is represented by the legal team at a very prestigious international law firm, Morrison Morrison and Forrester. Uh, And they have filed uh, two briefs with an arsenal of arguments. The 33-page motion requesting a new trial asserts that FBI agent Brian Atkins 
who served as the prosecutor's star witness, gave a false statement that helped swing the verdict. Uh, there's no subtlety in the section of the document titled multiple errors infected the jury's deliberations and denied Dr. Ridley Thomas a fair trial. Now, in the separate 37-page motion pushing for acquittal, also that motion takes swipes at the prosecution and its star witness, uh, FBI agent Atkins. In that motion, they charged that Atkins never had a full understanding of how the county government operates and that one powerful figure can't mash through a contract with zero oversight. We know that the government did not call a single witness from LA County to testify in its case. Uh, the filing also charges that the government didn't prove an essential element of its case. And that is that the government didn't prove any quid pro quo. Now, Judge Fisher will have Mark Ridley Thomas's legal team in her courtroom on June 26th. That is the same date that the judge has set for the sentencing of former dean of USC, Marilyn Flynn, the person who uh, is really at the heart of this entire case. Uh, she pled uh, guilty last year to one count of bribery. Uh, and the question we're asking uh, career prosecutor Bobby Grace today is, will the arguments made by Mark Ridley Thomas's legal team, will they resonate uh, with Judge Fisher, we know that generally it is an uphill battle to uh, have a verdict set aside in a federal uh, criminal case such as this. But we know when it comes to Mark Ridley Thomas, often the exception is the rule. Uh, welcome, Bobby, and thank you for joining me again. You have been a trusted source of legal uh, analysis and information on this case since we uh, started covering it uh, back at the beginning of March. And I appreciate you being here today to help us make sense of these motions, these very lengthy motions filed both by Mark Ridley Thomas's legal uh, team and the opposition, uh, also very lengthy opposition uh, filed by the prosecutors. Uh, let's start with Mark Ridley Thomas's motions. Uh, let's start with the motion for a new trial. Uh, what are your thoughts about in terms of the substance and the likelihood that it might be uh, persuasive enough uh, for the judge to consider granting a new trial? Good afternoon, Arviva. Thank you for having me, as always. Um, so you kind of laid out the uphill battle that Mark Ridley Thomas's team is facing, um, but you also laid out the fact that the uh, documents that were filed by his legal team are somewhat persuasive, and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> As you laid out in your introduction, um, the main witness who didn't testify but has kind of been brought up is uh, Marilyn Flynn, the USC dean, uh, who is the other side of the bribery part of all this, right? Right. Um, the Mark Ridley Thomas's team uh, effectively lay out that there was really no proof through any direct evidence that there was a quid pro quo between Mark Ridley Thomas and Marilyn Flynn. And in fact, uh, in conspiracy cases and bribery cases like this, it's very unusual for the prosecution, either on the state or the federal level, to take a plea deal with someone and then not have that person testify in court 
which did not happen here. Uh, and it's very, let me very stop you. Let me stop you there, Bobby. That's such a great point. And so many people ask that question uh, as we were providing that gavel to gavel trial coverage throughout this case. Folks ask, how come the prosecutors, when they cut the deal with Marilyn Flynn for her to plead guilty to one uh, bribery charge, why didn't they demand in that deal that she become a witness for the prosecution, which is, as you said, typically how these deals work when someone uh, you know, enters into a plea deal with the government? Obviously, they're trying to get a, a more lenient sentence. They're trying to curry favor with the government. And the government typically wants something back from them, like help us make the case against the other person, the other part of this conspiracy case that is going to trial. Why do you think they didn't demand that of Marilyn Flynn in this case? Well, the only thing that I can surmise, Reba, is that if she were called to the stand, she wouldn't have said what the prosecutors were alleging or, or what they wanted her to say. Um, mm. We know that um, there were other things that she was alleged to have done with respect to her stewardship of the dean uh, of social uh, welfare at, um, at USC. And in fact, her plea may be based on other charges that we're not aware of. Um, oh, so you're saying she may have plead guilty to something totally unrelated to Mark Rui Thomas? That's a strong possibility because wow. the federal government just does not enter into plea agreements without with people without having them spell out exactly what they're guilty of. They have to allocute. And in 99.9% of the cases, they have to testify against the other people that were involved in their crime. And that did not happen here. So I have to surmise that uh, Ms. Flynn would not have testified the way that they wanted her to in order to try to get a conviction against Mark Ridley Thomas. Let me ask you this, Bobby. Even though they didn't require her in that agreement, when you do that as a prosecutor, enter into a plea agreement, agreement don't require that uh, individual to testify. Can you still issue a subpoena? Like, could they have gotten halfway through their case and decided, hey, this isn't going well. We do need Marilyn Flynn. We know it's a risk. We know she's not the best witness for us. So we're going to issue a subpoena for her. Could they have done that? They could have. But uh, as you, 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 cl you closely follow this trial, and I don't think that the way that they set up their case really um, put in uh, the structure that Flynn would be testifying. And so to come in at the last minute and have her come in as a, as a witness to say, who knows what, what she would have said. And the federal government, you know, Ariba, they do not put on witnesses that they don't know exactly what they're going to say. And, and it, it you know, with the, the odds that it's going to really bolster their case. So uh, I just don't think on any front, any count that they felt that Flynn would be a productive witness for them. Okay, so let's go back to, you were saying, reading these motions, this this motion for a new trial, uh, you said there's some substance there, something that resonated with you, and you were making mention of the fact that Marilyn Flynn did not testify, she's the other side of this alleged quid pro quo, and we did not get to hear her testimony. So tell us what Mark Ridley Thomas's legal team made of that in its motion that you think is substantial. Well, in, the, in their motion, as you kind of laid out also in your introduction, they talk about how the FBI uh, agent didn't understand county government and that he wasn't qualified really 
to testify as to his view as to why there was a quid pro quo between um, Mark Ridley Thomas and Marilyn Flint. And in fact, uh, much of the prosecution's case, which they kind of go back to in their response um, to Mark Ridley Thomas's team asking for either acquittal or a new trial, they refer to text messages between Mark Ridley Thomas and Marilyn Flint, which uh, ultimately the FBI agent was left to kind of tell the jury what he thought the text messages meant. Um, that's kind of unusual in any criminal case and definitely unusual for a federal um, a federal uh, prosecution. You would want to have a witness that would explain everything that's in the text messages and, and ideally somebody that's in the heart of the deal, part of the conspiracy, part of the bribery. That didn't happen here. And so there's a very, very good uh, arguments that the Mark Ridley Thomas's team made in their moving papers. Now, to go back to your original point, yes, it is an uphill battle because remember, they're arguing to the judge that was listening to all the evidence. And if she had agreed, then she should have um, called for an acquittal at the close of the prosecution's case. Which well, let me do this. So let me stop you, Bobby, because you just raised, you keep raising these really good points. The text, they, so the prosecution in its opposition, its its reply to the government, uh, to Mark Ridley Thomas's team's moving papers, their motions, they they resort back to what their case is. They they kind of reiterate what the evidence is. This is the only evidence that's available to them to argue. So they go back to arguing that. But it begs the question, as you just said, that typically you wouldn't see a case put on about text messages back and forth from A to B without having A or B testifying. In this case, we had text messages between A and B, and then C comes in, is trying to interpret what those text messages between A and B means. And C wasn't there at the time that the text messages were sent. C talked maybe to A, but we know C didn't talk to B. So C is only left with you know whatever he can surmise based on the conversation uh, with A and perhaps A, as you said, didn't tell C what C wanted to hear because otherwise they would have had A come in and testify. Why were those text messages that are so critical to the government's case, why were they allowed in? Because that's also, we'll get to that, a part of what the prosecution says is, look, Mark Ridley Thomas's legal team was incompetent and they should have been objecting more. And if they didn't object to try to keep some of this evidence out, they can't be heard to complain now. Basically, they have to live with their own incompetence. I'm, I'm just paraphrasing kind of what their uh, the government's reply motions say. But why were those text messages allowed to be interpreted by C? And C, in this case, was the FBI agent. Well, <clears throat> the argument from the prosecutors was that the text messages were uh, if you will, plain on its face, that the bribery is there for everybody to see and that a lay person could interpret it. But, you know, the we do have the FBI agent that can kind of spell it out also in lay person's terms. He's not an expert. He doesn't work for the Board of Supervisors. He doesn't work within county government. So I don't think in any way, shape or form, he could have been viewed as an expert. Um, but he could, as a lay person, say, what a layperson's view of the text messages between Mark Ridley Thomas and Marilyn Flynn meant. 
Um, that's one of the major problems with the case. Um, uh, much of what the prosecution alleged against Mark Riley Thomas was not found to be true by the jury. The only thing that's really left in this case is the one vote with respect to um, the uh, the county contract, which is the whole basis of the honest services conviction uh, of Mark Riley Thomas. And one key point here, Ariba, that a lot of people may not be um, watching is that there have been a few uh, Supreme Court decisions recently that overturn convictions by the federal government for this same um, honest services um, prosecution or, or bribery, if you will. And the, federal, the Supreme Court is saying that this whole law with respect to honest services is confusing and that mm. uh, it's very difficult to convict someone under this. And this doesn't bode well down the road if this holds up in terms of a conviction and actual sentence of Mark Ridley Thomas, I think he stands a really good chance of getting the conviction overturned on appeal because of these recent decisions by the United States Supreme Court. Yeah, one of the things that really got me confused, Bobby, and you'll remember this, when this case first hit the news, there were allegations that the contract involved, that the so-called quid pro quo contract was a $8 million contract that in exchange for an $8 million contract that was given to USC School of Social Work, Mark Ruey Thomas was getting his son, Sebastian Ruey Thomas, into USC uh, with a scholarship, and he was getting a job, and he was getting this favorable treatment, a fast-track uh, admission into a graduate program, scholarship, and job. And in exchange, USC was getting an $8 million contract. Now, we know things that are said in the court of public opinion often aren't the evidence is not the evidence that's introduced in court. And boy, is that ever true in this case. So we went from being told for months and months that it was $8 million and it was so salacious and it seemed so horrible, like, oh my God, $8 million, to when we got down to it in court, Bobby, it was a $545,000 contract. And what Mark Burley Thomas's legal team argues in their papers is that that contract for $545,000 had already been exhausted. So by that, the time that's a big that's a big part of this, Ariba. Of this, that's my a big part was of spinning, it. Bobby. I was like, yes. wait a minute. Yeah. This is We're a big part of it. Yet. We're not 545,000. We're down to zero. Yeah, I that's mean, a that, big part of it. That that um that what they were alleging never really was voted on in the manner that they alleged. And if there's a strong argument that Mark Ridley Thomas was going to vote. Yes, for this particular deal, because he already voted yes in other parts of it that had already been in front of the county, which I don't know that the FBI agent really understood. So that's another part of the argument that MRT's team is going to be making uh, when they get their chance to argue. Yeah, th that part of it really, really, I, I felt like we had been hoodwinked. I felt like the public had been misled by the mainstream media, and even by the government. And when we come forward, I want to ask you as a prosecutor, how can a prosecutorial team working for the Department of Justice, federal you know, office, put forth a case that is seemingly so shoddy and so bereft of actual facts? It just feels like this whole case 
was built on uh, a misunderstanding of the facts and even a, a misrepresentation of the facts. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. More on the federal bribery trial of Margaret Lee Thomas when we come forward. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back and it's hour two of Ariva Martin in real time. And in this hour, I go behind the headlines and dig deep into the stories that have people talking. And in this hour, I'm talking to veteran uh, prosecutor Bobby Grace about the motions that were filed by former L.A. City Council member Mark Riley Thomas, his legal team filed two uh, pretty substantial motions asking that he be granted a new trial in the federal uh, bribery case uh, that concluded almost a month ago and that the verdict, the guilty verdict, be set aside. Uh, and it's important to note that the guilty verdict of Mark Riley Thomas devastated uh I would say thousands of people in the Los Angeles community. Uh, I know I heard uh, from politicians and community leaders and everyday citizens uh, throughout the city of Los Angeles who just felt that the verdict was patently unfair. Uh, They were aghast that an African-American elected official with a lengthy record of achievements such as Mark Riley Thomas had been taken down for supporting the kind of community benefiting projects that he had worked on for more than 30 years, really throughout his entire professional career. Uh, That's the reason that after that verdict, Bobby, we saw public figures, including the recently elected mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass, come out with public statements extolling uh, Mark Riley Thomas and praising him for his commitment to service. This wasn't your everyday bribery case. This wasn't a guy that had taken money. This wasn't about private jets or uh, you know, expensive gifts or casino chips in Las Vegas. There was no money exchanged in this case at all. Mark Riley Thomas received no monetary benefit Uh, The only benefit at issue was uh, allegedly a benefit to his son, again, uh, Sebastian Riley Thomas, who was more than qualified to be admitted to USC's Graduate School of Social Work, a a graduate of Morehouse College, uh, a very accomplished elected official in his own right, gets admitted to the School of Social Work uh, and gets a job as a, a professional uh, you know, that is similar to so many others that we've seen who leave political office, who go to work at institutions like USC. So for many of us in the community, we just thought this was an unfair targeting by the prosecution of a very, very effective African-American elected official. And then we see the prosecution's case, Bobby, a case where they didn't call one witness from the county of Los Angeles. They didn't call one employee that worked in Mark Ridley Thomas's office who had dealt with Marilyn Flynn, even the employee who received the so-called smoking gun letter that was delivered, hand-delivered by Marilyn Flynn's uh, team that the prosecution made such a big deal out of this confidential letter. Uh, those employees were called in the case of Mark Ridley Thomas. So let's Again, talk about these motions. We know traditionally there's an uphill battle, but you just identified these Supreme Court cases that may make it difficult for the prosecution's uh, case to withstand scrutiny, at least on appeal. But I want to ask you about the reply filed by the prosecution. 
they really go after lead counsel. This Morrison Enforcer, very accomplished attorney. They call her a patent lawyer. They say she was out of her lane. They say she, you know, didn't know how to prosecute uh, effectively a criminal case of this nature and basically say, look, you lost the case because you were incompetent. Uh, what do you make of that argument, Bobby? Well, Ariva, uh, I'm very um, disappointed when uh, lawyers on either side resort to name calling or, um, you know, talking in personal terms about lawyers. You should be sticking to, you know, what uh, the strengths and weaknesses of the other side's case are. You know, if, if there were strengths, you need to be trying to tear those down with your arguments. Or if there are weaknesses, then you need to bolster your own arguments. And I think it's you're on dangerous ground whenever you're trying to reference uh, the attorneys. And so I, I think- mean, they go as far as to say he had ineffective assistance of counsel. Explain what that means to the lay person. I mean, that's a pretty, you know, salacious charge by the prosecution. Basically, it means that you hired a, a, a bad uh, a deal, a person to represent you in court and that they didn't do a very good job. Uh, and again, uh, you just don't want uh, either side to be talking about the, the merits of the uh, attorneys uh, in, in the case. Just, you know, if you're resorting to that, then that means that, um, your own arguments in the in support of your own case are not as solid as uh, you would think. What do you absolutely? And we should just remind the listeners and viewers: these lawyers, Morrison and Forrest, are one of the most well-respected, you know, national law firms in this country, uh, and they did get an acquittal on twelve counts of this nineteen-count uh, indictment. So it wasn't as if. You know, we're not talking about folks who didn't know what they were doing. And it wasn't just uh, the lead attorney who is a patent attorney by training or by practice, I should say. There was a team of lawyer from Morrison and Forster, including some super experienced criminal lawyers, uh, lawyers from some of the best law schools in this country. So this this was not some inexperienced legal team that did not know what it was doing. Uh, so I, I don't know where that argument goes. But but let's talk about the jury. We, we learned something, Bobby, about how the jury viewed this case because the foreperson uh, gave an interview to the Los Angeles Times, and she made it clear in that interview that a deciding factor in a in the guilty verdict was the one hundred thousand dollars that Mark Lee Thomas had directed from a campaign account through USC with the money then flowing to a nonprofit that was going to be run by his son. Uh, they say that action plus the email from Mark Ruley Thomas asking Flynn to, uh, you know, dispatch the check with, you know, some, some Haste. dispatch it. Yes. Hastily, <laughs> speedily, quickly. Uh, they say that was, the deciding factor, but we know that there was an expert witness for Mercury Thomas who said that $100,000 contribution to USC and the routing of that $100,000 to the nonprofit to be run by his son was not illegal, that it was in fact legal. Now, it might have been against USC's internal policies, but there was nothing illegal about it, and the prosecution never countered that argument. They were never able to bring forth an expert to prove or to establish that there was anything illegal about that payment. How do you think that argument 
is going to factor into the judge's decision with respect to these two motions? Well, I think the judge is going to have to deal with that particular aspect of it. And in her ruling, she's going to have to um, kind of go in and say, OK, this is what uh, the actual bribery that we're talking about or quid pro quo. What it is really is not the passing through of the money through USC. It was Mark really Thomas's vote for getting um, his son to do this. So the actual doing of it wasn't illegal. It's the the bribery aspect of it, if you will. If uh, if if it, if it's in fact true that Mark Ridley really Thomas voted the way that he did because of USC taking uh, this particular um, route. But let's go back to the the contracts again. That's what really is hanging me up about this case. Uh, as I said earlier in the show. The $8 million, that turned out to be just a complete misstatement, misrepresentation of the facts. There never was an $8 million contract that even the government uh, tried to present. They had no evidence of that. And Mark Ridley Thomas's legal team argues that even the $545,000 contract had been exhausted. Uh, so these contracts are rolling. So you have a contract up to a certain amount, and then you bill your services. So this was a telehealth contract. So monthly, as the uh, telehealth services were being provided by the School of Social Work, they were billing the county and they get to bill up to a certain amount. And in this case, they got to bill up to the $545,000. And when you hit that limit, then you no longer have any funds left in that contract to which to draw down from. So essentially, there's zero left on the contract. When we come forward, I want to ask you, what is the judge going to do if she believes, as the evidence was presented by Mark Riley Thomas's legal team, that there was no money even left in this contract? So can you, is there bribery if I'm voting on a contract where there's zero monetary value being provided to uh, the other party in this alleged bribery scheme, in this case, USC, a school of social work, when we come forward more with Bobby Grace on the federal bribery trial of Mark Ridley Thomas, KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. So, Bobby, the question I, I'm still trying to get an answer to is how might the judge deal with this issue of the value of the contract? And will that also come into play when the judge you know, moves forward with the sentencing hearing in August? Because obviously, had there been an $8 million contract uh, at issue in this case, it might uh, have ramifications for one sentence versus if the legal team of Mark Ridley Thomas is correct, that by the time this vote took place, the contract was basically exhausted. I'm sure that has to have other implications for how the judge might uh, consider both the motions for a new trial and for setting aside the verdict as well as sentencing. Um, let's take uh, sentencing first, Ariva. So in any federal bribery charge, the amount of money that's involved always plays a part in terms of the sentencing. So it would inure to, it would help Mark Ridley Thomas if, in fact, there was very little money involved in the so-called bribery aspect of all of this. 
And uh, it, it should bode well for him in terms of the sentencing. See, the other part of it. Well, let me stop you on that, the sentencing. Okay. So you said it bode well for him. Give us some range, you know, if in terms of federal sentencing guidelines in this kind of case, are there maximum minimums? Will the judge have complete discretion? And based on there being, you know, very little money uh, involved, what might you think or what do you think that sentence might be, look like? So there are minimums, uh, federal minimums and maximums with respect to this. There are guidelines, federal guidelines that are very strict uh, because of the fact that he was convicted of conspiracy and bribery in relationship to the overall case. Uh, he would be sentenced to um, some time in custody. The hope would be that it would be on the minimum side. And given his long tenure in government, his um, absolute fantastic service to uh, Los Angeles community in both state, federal, uh, not state, but um, state and uh, local government, he would get uh, credit for all that, Ariba. And I would think that given the way the, the Supreme Court has been ruling in this particular area, the minimum amount of time uh, would uh, be suggested here in terms of sentencing. Mm-hmm. And do you have any sense about what that what those minimums are? Are we talking six months, 18 months, 24 months? Because we know there's a recommendation of some kind of home confinement uh, for Marilyn Flynn. Now, obviously, she pled guilty and the rules are different, obviously, when someone uh, takes a plea deal rather than, you know, proceed to trial. But assuming the recommendation for Marilyn Flynn is six months home confinement, just based on your years of experience, I know you can't, you don't have a crystal ball, you can't look at what this judge is going to do. I know there's a whole, you know, pre-sentencing report that has to be done, but just based on your experience, what's your gut telling you the number is in a case like this? I would think that it would be somewhere in with federal guidelines now. Um, He would have to do... um, federal custody in the range of about 20 months, 20 to 30 months uh, in what I would think would be some kind of um, um, minimal security um, facility. That Mm -hmm. that would be my guess. Okay. And so you were going to respond to, I stopped you to ask you about the sentencing, but let's, let's go back to the motions themselves uh, assuming that there's very little money left in these contracts. It's not the $8 million, It's not even the 545000 How do you think that plays into the motion for a new trial and the motion to set aside the verdict? Well, so Judge Fisher is going to have to determine whether there was some value there for the quid pro quo. And the prosecution's argument would be that, um, yes, we had argued earlier that it was $8 million. We were wrong. Um, and it's probably because they didn't have a good understanding of county rules and how county contracts work. But the argument would be from the prosecutors is that this was an ongoing contract that would renew at some level of money. And that really what we're talking about was Mark Billy Thomas's support for the overall um, idea that uh, the probation department would be working with the USC School of Welfare. And so that's the true value would be the prosecutor's argument. Ariva, you kind of laid out what the uh, Mark Ridley Thomas's team was that this was something that because it was ongoing, Mark Ridley Thomas had already voted for this. And that because of Mark Ridley Thomas's longstanding relationship with USC, really all he was doing was asking USC 
to do a favor for his son, which wasn't illegal. And if you, if you view it in that terms, in those terms, there's a strong argument that Mark Ridley Thomas did nothing wrong here. On the flip side, the, the specter of the son getting a scholarship uh, in the backdrop of um, the U hope, it wasn't just USC, but other schools uh, with the scandal about people uh, getting into school for money. Um, I think, you know, it just didn't look good at the start of the case as you kind of laid out. <clears throat> but when everything played out, it all comes down to this one thing, um, scholarship for Mark Ridley Thomas and a pass through through the nonprofit, which isn't of itself illegal. So <clears throat> when you when you really boil all this down, some people are probably asking, what really did Mark Ridley Thomas do, which was illegal? Yeah, and, you know, I think, again, so many of us are scratching our head trying to figure out how a case that on the facts where you, the government doesn't even understand the mechanisms of county government, how a case gets this far. Uh, and given someone who had such a longstanding relationship with this university and whose the university was in his district and his job was to provide contracts to serve the marginalized community uh, in his district. That's what elected officials are, you know, elected to do. And so they do it in this context. And, you know, these private universities have all of these VIP programs where they accept uh, various members into their graduate programs because it's prestigious for them. It's prestigious that a former elected official is on your faculty. It's prestigious that a former, you know, governor is on your faculty. So uh, again, his son, so so well qualified to be accepted into USC, irrespective of whatever was going on with his dad. It's just hard to to see how the government was able to put together this case. Uh, I do want to ask you though, uh, uh, Bobby. The court. You mentioned these these recent Supreme Court cases that that really call into question honest service mail fraud and how difficult it's going to be for prosecutions to move forward in prosecuting some of these cases. How much do you think the judge is going to be thinking about those cases, thinking about what happens on appeal as she's reviewing these motions, hearing the arguments, and ultimately making her decisions? I think she's going to try to stay in her lane and. Um, because, again, she presided over the case, and she had an opportunity to um, dismiss it at the close of the prosecution case, and she didn't, then it, you know, kind of tends toward her sticking with her initial perceptions of all this and sticking with the, the guilty verdict, uh, verdicts that came out. But, again, um, this is a case that had a lot of twists and turns, and as we pointed out, Probably what the prosecutors thought they were working with initially when the case was originally filed, something happened um, and they lost a, a piece or big pieces of what they thought were going to be uh, their case. It didn't come to fruition for whatever reasons. Include That includes Marilyn Flynn not being a witness here. So um, I think there are opportunities here for the judge to do something unprecedented. Uh, which would be to either grant a new trial or dismiss uh, the case outright. In a case where a judge does grant a new trial, again, you mentioned, I think you're right on the money when you say something happened in this case. From the time they got the referral 
And we're like, oh my God, this is going to continue our legacy of bringing down these big, powerful Los Angeles elected officials who were involved in all of this corruption to the time they got to the courthouse, their case had lost something really big, something very significant. Knowing that if a new trial is granted, what does the prosecution do? Because they got to go back to court with that same case. Well, I think either they would have to convince uh, Marilyn Flynn to become a witness. And again, we don't know what she would have said. We're all speculating here, guessing that she wouldn't have been good for the prosecutor. So that may not be a good route for them to go to try to get her to come in. But they would have to get somebody to come in and say, you know, outright that Mark Ridley Thomas had done something illegal. And given the posture of the case and the way things go, I don't know that they'd be able to do it. Wow. Yeah, lots of unknowns. Uh, June 26th, this, uh, these motions filed by Mark Curley Thomas's legal team will be heard uh, in the courtroom of the same judge that presided over the trial. She'll have to contend with these arguments, very persuasive, very powerful arguments made by the legal team for Mark Curley Thomas. She'll have to obviously take into consideration the uh, opposition motions filed by the prosecutors. And on that same date, she is going to issue her sentence for the former dean of USC Social School, Marilyn Flynn. We will continue to provide gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage uh, of the federal bribery trial of Mark Ruey Thomas. We'll have our veteran prosecutor, uh, Bobby Grace, back with us, uh, as well as some of the others in our legal panel who've been helping us uh, break down this case and to understand the nuances and the intricacies of a federal bribery trial. Thank you so much, Bobby, for your time today. Uh, and that's Thank it you. for Reva Martin in real time. The next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Rao Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.